Beautiful Schools coming to you almost live from Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. Today it's coming to you less than almost live. Well, it's almost live on Zoom. Uh, and this is Bob Maxfield, and I'm with my wonderful co-host, uh, Dr. Suzanne Klein. Uh, and today we're officially renewing the Podcast for Leaderful Schools series, which began back uh, about 14 years ago. And more than 200 episodes have been recorded over the years. And uh, you're gonna be seeing our regular listeners and I hope our new listeners will be seeing uh, an inventory of the previous programs uh, categorized uh, in a way that you can, they'll be accessible. So we hope you to stay in tune, but we've got a, a wonderful beginning today and we'll introduce our guest in just a second. Uh, Sue, it's, we always begin by saying, how are things though? Um, we're recording on a beautiful day here in Michigan. It is lovely. I just was outside for a quick walk and it's blue skies, high 40s, and you forget that winter may be around the corner. It, you just have to savor the moments and today was the day to savor, no doubt about it. And savoring it in mid-December is, is a bonus, so uh, we are delighted. Well, our guest today is Dr. and Dean Kevin Corcoran. Uh, I've known Kevin for, for many years in my time at Oakland, and he's one of the people I respect the most. Uh, Kevin has been the uh, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences since 2013. He came to us from uh, Northern Kentucky University. Uh, he's a psychologist by trade, and that's, in a minute, you'll see why that's relevant. Uh, recently, he was named by Oakland's president, so in addition to being the Dean of College of Arts and Sciences, because that wasn't a full-time enough, full enough job, uh, he was named the Chief and Community Engagement Officer. Uh, and that uh, is worth mentioning because uh, Kevin has provided important leadership at Oakland University in helping this university become a community-engaged university. And much, in fact, before we went on the air, we were talking a bit about that. So, uh, Kevin, thanks for being with us. And we're just delighted. I'm thrilled to be here, Bob and Suzanne. And, and part of that, let me say one other thing as a context that uh, a couple of weeks ago, we invited Kevin to preside over a, a, a virtual meeting with a group of 15 or so local school superintendents uh, to help them understand uh, the social and emotional issues that they might be feeling and certainly their staffs, their communities, their students are feeling uh, as it relates to uh, uh, this most unprecedented time with the uh, with the current pandemic. So, um, and that's really our topic for today. So Sue, let me turn it over to you. Well, you've given me a, a nice lead in, Bob, because Kevin, we thought we would start with, we're talking a little bit about your day job, um, the regular part of the job, other duties as assigned, and then what the pandemic has brought forward as important at Oakland University for students, faculty, and staff. So walk us through that, would you please? Sure. Um, again, pleasure to be with both of you. Um, so the College of Arts and Sciences at Oakland accounts for about 60% of all the undergraduate credits, 60 to 65%, and all of the core curriculum or general education, uh, I think it's 95% of those courses are within the College of Arts and Sciences. I, I bring that up because that means that we're, for most students, the first point of contact with the university. Um, they may have one course in their major, but for most students, the rest of their courses are within the College of Arts and Sciences. So as we see these brand new students coming this fall and having had in many cases, the last couple of months of their senior year of high school nipped in the bud. Uh, and then they come to Oakland and we, 
our president very early in the summer talked about uh, our taking a hybrid approach, which at our place meant a little bit of everything. <laughs> there was a mixture of some in-person classes with social distancing. Um, all, all of our, our science labs were in-person with social distancing. So you have to think about things like, what if somebody's wearing a mask and they sneeze? How do you handle that? Uh, all of these things that a year ago would have seemed like science fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so for example, in that case, uh, we, we learned by, by experience, for each of our labs, there was a separate clean room that people could go to if they needed to pull their mask down and just take a few breaths because those labs last three or four hours in many cases, or if you sneeze. And so mm -hmm. also making sure that every faculty member brought extra face masks with them to class in case something like that happened, in case somebody forgot them. So, so back, to the, back to the narrative, we, so we did some face-to-face, some -face. we did some face-to-face um, -face but virtual, like we're doing right now, uh, where in real time you're talking to somebody on the screen and then face-to-face, -face, not kind connected, not contemporaneous, uh, which we refer to as asynchronous. Um, I will just note that that, um, that type of course tends to be very difficult for a brand new college student because they yeah. benefit from the structure that comes along with knowing that on Tuesday and Thursday at two o'clock, I have to be quote unquote in class, whether that's a separate room in a building on campus or whether that's sitting at my desk at home. Um, and um, and then finally, we had some hybrids where there was a bit of a, an in-person component where that fit the needs best. And then there was some virtual, whether it was synchronous or asynchronous. Uh, and then of course, what happened, and it was right around the time we had the meeting with the superintendents, we went completely remote because, because of the spike in cases and the incidents. Um, we went to um, either synchronous or asynchronous, but it was all online, including some labs. And so, and that we, we pivoted in that way, very much like March in that we just had a couple days notice. So how has, how has this changed my life? Completely. I spent a lot more time at home. <laughs> <In work. laughs> uh, and, uh, and we've learned a whole lot of things. I mean, I, I've learned to, to pay attention to positivity rates which I started paying attention to in mid-October. And as I started them seeing them increase, I started saying to department chairs, you know, I think we're heading in a direction where you might want to anticipate, I don't have any insider information, but this seems to be the direction we're going in, which yeah. is part of what I have always seen my job as Dean as being is to kind of try to give people some sense of what might lie ahead as they're trying to, to battle through the muck they're dealing with at the moment. So I'll, I'll just kind of close with, we're in finals exam time now. Um, I've talked to a number of faculty who have said they've modified requirements because they see the stress in the students. They see the students being overwhelmed. Um, several faculty have done things like um, turn on the, the, the connection, the Zoom or whatever the, the method used is turning it on earlier to allow mm -hmm. students to interact with one another and, and gather the way people do in a traditional class. Right. Um, and I will tell you that while students have felt um, adrift often, I've heard from a lot of faculty how much they miss students, how much they miss 
seeing them, how much they miss those little interactions that you have just before and just after class or in the hallways on your way from point A to point B. Um, and this kind of configuration where you're looking at a screen, first of all, is more difficult to make private. Mm -hmm. so, so students who might've been struggling with something where they could talk to a faculty member after class for five minutes, they don't have that opportunity. Um, and also it just seems more formal because it's so public. Uh, and it's a real challenge for, for uh, many of our folks. So we got our fingers crossed for vaccines. Uh, we got our fingers crossed for, um, for the what we call winter semester, the semester that starts in January. And we will begin that virtually for the first two weeks uh, so that we allow people to, uh, to be more isolated as they're coming back from wherever they've been with family or wherever. You alluded well, to the fact that, that students certainly feel adrift and, uh, uh, and there's a certain stress level that goes with it. How about faculty though? Uh, as we make the transition to what you learned in talking with our high school or our K-12 people, but university faculty, has this been an easy transition or? Um, um, it, it's, or, been a difficult or. it's been It's been a difficult transition for most and, and for a whole variety of reasons. Some people have are not as comfortable with technology, have never taught using technology before, short of, you know, beyond a PowerPoint in a classroom. Um, and so they've been trying to figure out how do I recreate an educational experience in this domain that I don't really know very much about. Uh, then, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, I, I, earlier today, I've had, I had three different faculty members tell me in the last 24 hours how much they missed their students and how this was better than nothing. Uh, and they were certainly glad to be able to do the course synchronously. So it's face-to-face, -face, but it's a mediated face-to-face, -face. Um, but, but that it, it, it wasn't the same and they just missed them. And in fact, one, one uh, faculty member was telling me yesterday, she was reading final papers. Um, and she said she had tears coming down her cheeks because she realized that this was the, the major way she was really gonna get to know the students because they were faces on a screen for the entirety of the semester. But when she asked them to do deeper reflection on things that were happening, um, there's a, just a quick note, this was a communication class. And what she did was she had them do email interviews with local corporate leaders about how they were coping with COVID and then oh. ask them to reflect on what they heard from these corporate leaders. And so they were talking about their own lives. Mm -hmm in light of what the corporate leaders were having to do. Very, actually, very much like the superintendents, right? Similar challenges. Well, speaking of that, let's, let's turn to that meeting that uh, you joined us on with, our, with a group of our local superintendents. Uh, what, did you, what was your message to them? I mean, because you were, you've just gotten through describing what, you know, how you've helped your faculty deal with the pandemic at the university level, but, uh, and we had talked in advance about some things you might want to say, but we'll, but re recall for us a bit of what you said to that group of superintendents. And then I want to talk about what you heard from them. Yeah. Um, well, one, one, of the, one, of the, one of the key messages uh, that I was trying to deliver, and just, just to be clear, I, I, I really wanted this to be about them and not me. 
Um, and so I, I focused on trying to keep my remarks brief and giving them most of the time to have conversation and reflect and react. Um, but I talked about some research on the importance of human connection. Mm -hmm. and, and in some cases, this is not research I talked about, but, but a lot of people who would be listening to this podcast and certainly you all would, uh, would be familiar with the research of Tiffany Field. Right? Tiffany Field was the psychologist who did the research on the importance of babies being touched. And, you know, it, that's that foo-foo stuff, right? It's like, oh yeah, this really, it, it matters, it this, it that. Um, and what they found was that, that preemies who were touched at six months out had uh, more bone density. I mean, that's not foo-foo. Uh, their head circumferences were, were greater. All of those kinds of physiological metrics and also saw that their heart rates decreased as they were being touched. We know that from research now that the same thing happens with the elderly. I mean, it's one of those challenges, right? So, so part of what I talked about was that important of, importance of human connection and that that's one of the ways in which we're challenged right now. Um, and then we, the, the, the point that I think really resonated for these folks, because it, it came back several different ways in different times during the conversation, was that idea of that we have analogous to our, to our financial bank account, we have an emotional bank account, an, an account that when positive things happen to us, when we have a nice walk on a beautiful day, we're making deposits into that emotional bank account. Absolutely. We're, we're allowing that to, to store up to, to um, Suzanne, you and I talked a, a couple of weeks before that about a, a podcast uh, called Poetry Unbound. Right, that's ten minutes long. Right, blows you down. You listen to a poem. You listen to a, a melodious voice giving you a, a perspective on the poem, and then you listen to the poem again. Those kinds of things add, but but also the connection with other people, the holding hands with a loved one, the seeing the face of somebody you care about. All of those kinds of things add to the emotional bank account. Now. Not having those things starts to draw on the emotional bank account and then having to deal with all of these crazy things that we've all had to deal with and most of all these superintendents where the rules keep changing and the rules are changing in an area that they've chosen to devote their lives to. So it's clearly something of great import to them. If the rules keep changing on a sporting event that I don't really care about, doesn't bother me. There's no draw on my emotional bank account. So, um, so one of the one of the challenges that people in positions like those superintendents have is how do you replenish that bank account? How do you make sure you take those walks when mm -hmm. there's a zillion things to do and 25 emails in the last 10 minutes to respond to? Angry parents frustrated board members, all happening in the context of all of these decisions appearing to be connected with politics and, and people's political attitudes um, just keep drawing on that account. You made a good point in response to one of their questions about the fact that even without the pandemic, this would have been a difficult year. A uh, difficult year because of uh, uh, the 
renewal of concerns about racial equity following the George Floyd killing. Uh, difficult year because of the incredible polarization around the presidential election. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a challenging context. It was a one, two, three punch that uh, again, the superintendents are on the front line of that, of those issues. We all face them to some degree. But the other thing that I think is key, Bob, is those three things are multiplicative, right? They're not three independent stressors and they're not even additive. You put those together and it's an exponential function and, and it becomes incredibly stressful and you can't uh, tease them apart to only deal with one of them, which is what makes it a wicked problem to have yeah. to deal with. One yeah. of the remarkable parts of that conversation, Kevin, and I'm still thinking about it as we're speaking again together today, is the way the, the stage was set with the information you shared about some of the research finding predictability and then how open the conversation quickly became because these were not people that were best friends. They were across three counties region-wise. Um, they happened to make up 40-some percent of the students uh, in the state in terms of their school district, but many of them have never met each other before. Some of them had been in the business of being a superintendent for a decade or more, others for just months. And suddenly you had convened this very human, open and vulnerable conversation. Um, which seemed like you had just given a gift uh, to all of them. Well, thank you. And, and in fact, I, I would quibble with the word that Bob used a few minutes ago. I, I didn't feel like I presided. I felt like I was a witness. <laughs> Preside is a bad word. Your witness is a better word. You're absolutely right. I was a participant and a witness yeah. to it. And, and um, it's, it was incredibly gratifying to have been able to do what, whatever little thing that I did to create the space where people felt comfortable. Um, and, and, you know, if you recall, a couple of the, the first two folks, uh, two or three folks were kind of telling their story, which yes. I think opened the door to other people to both tell their story and then talk about their reaction and their frustration. Um, the one, the one uh, I think it was one of the first year superintendents who said he felt like a punching bag. Yes. That phrase has stuck with me during the three plus weeks since we've, we've done that. And, and I, one of the things that it immediately triggered in my head, and I think I made the comment was, yes, punching bags are not human. Mm -hmm. And so you feel people are treating you in such a way that's promoting a feeling of you're not a human being. I don't really need to care about you. I don't really need to connect with you. And punching bags don't have feelings. And right? I feel like I have permission to act out my own concerns and you are going to be the target of those. Thank you very much. Exactly. And, and then we've got those three things woven together. And, and as we were talking about it, we've got those, those three things that you, you described, Bob. We also have a fourth one, which is economic stressors. Mm -hmm. right? People worried about their jobs, people losing their jobs, one of the family members losing their job. And so you've got other people's emotional bank account being drawn down. And, you know, the, the metaphor, playing with this metaphor, they're trying to rob from these superintendents bank account. 
because theirs is drawn down. Because the, it isn't fair that theirs was drawn down. One of the statements that illustrates that, and I don't remember if you, you pro promoted it or somebody else uh, mentioned it, and that is that during this time, most everybody's asking the same question. The problem is they want different answers. And I found that really, I've, I've used that many times since because, uh, yeah, they all want to know, are our kids going to be safe in school? It's just that they, they have a different answer from <laughs> the person next door. Well, I, I'd also say the, the other um, tandem question to that, Bob, is how are you going to keep our kids safe? Mm -hmm. right? If the answer is by having them stay home, you're wrong with half the, the group. Right. And if you have it be exactly. by coming into the classroom, you're wrong with the other half. Right. And there's and probably some people in the middle who, for whom you're wrong no matter which one you decide. I think you're right about that. And, and given that, Kevin, as, as that is the reality to which these people are, are uh, walking into every day or uh, Zooming into every day, shall we say, part of your message also was the importance for them to take care of themselves. And this notion of self-care and care for those that are close around them in their organization is a key piece. And yet at the same time, you also heard the message that some of them don't feel they have the skills to do that. Um, they're just walking around with all of this stuff in that emotional bank account and their balance is getting lower and lower. Do you want to talk about how you advise them about that? Because I think that was so helpful. Yeah, well, the folks who go into education are about, they go into it for other people. They don't mm -hmm. go into it for, for the glory of it all. And, and certainly not for the financial riches that come along with being an educator. Um, as I said before, they're fully committed. And it, it can feel selfish. It can feel... Um, for, for someone with that approach to their work and that approach to life. And there are so many needs out there that seem greater than mine. Yes. Because I'm not hungry. I've got enough to eat. I have a job. Who am I to say this is too much for me right now? When other people have more too much. Um, the problem is, and that's where I like the, the it, it's not a perfect analogy, but that's where I like the bank account because there are people who have less money than I do, but that, but if I give them all my money and more, then I'm not going to be able to do my work. I'm not going to be able to do the things I do that add value to other people's lives. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it is perhaps in the short run appears selfish but we've got to encourage folks to look in the longer run in, in a more extended time frame, because, you know, as much as some of us might like to think of us as having the cape and the, the S on our, yeah. our shirt, um, stress is kryptonite for Superman. And mm. when you get stressed, you lose those superpowers that you have as a superintendent as a family member, as a community member, as somebody who can contribute. And so you, you really need to balance that out with those deposits to the, to the bank account. The taking an evening where you just chill, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the time away, the engaging with family, the going for a walk on a nice day, 
Yeah. Because you know there aren't going to be that many more nice days <laughs> coming right. up. So you take them where you can get them. Um, I, I think that those are critical things and they require a, a, a change in mindset. I think the other thing that, that often folks, like the folks that we talked to last month, are challenged to do is tell other people that they need that time. Yes. You know, I'm not going to be around for the next 30 minutes because I'm going to go for a walk. I just, I'll just tell you a, a quick story. John Gardner, the former, the guy who created Common Cause and, and, and was the founder of, was a secretary of health, health education and welfare under Lyndon Johnson, used to leave work every day at 4.30. The cabinet secretary leaving work at 4.30. And, and finally, this young intern went up to him and said, Mr. Secretary, I, I, I need to ask you because I'd like to learn from you. What is it that you do every day at 4.30 and why do you leave here? And he said, because what they pay me to do is think. And mm -hmm. if I'm sitting there with the phone ringing and people knocking at my door, I can't think. So I need to go someplace else to think. And that way I can come back tomorrow and do a better job. I love that story. You know, as we get near the end of our time together today, uh, I was, you know, Suzanne and I have thought a lot about this stuff since the session three weeks ago with the with the superintendents, and I wonder, I'm sure you have too, and you have some other thoughts that occurred to you. One that one that came up at a meeting yesterday, and uh, and I don't think it was really explicit three weeks ago, but it's more, I'm hearing it more and more. And it has to do with the, you know, when this is all over, what's gonna be the emotional and psychological and psychiatric fallout? I mean, with the children who have been out of school for more than a year, missed that socialization, with the teachers who have been trying to juggle all of these things, with the, with the families that are dealing with uh, you know, all the things we alluded to earlier in terms of balancing uh, their jobs, their economic future, and their children's well-being. So I guess that's the next challenge down the road is, uh, but I think it's going to change, needs to change the focus of schools. I, I wonder, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm going to make your problem even more wicked, Bob, ah, good. <laughs> fortunately, which is um, the um, everything that you said is worse for people who are already disadvantaged. They're less likely to get their job back. Yep. Their, their kids are going to have a steeper hill to climb in trying to get back. They're probably more, they're certainly more likely to have mental health problems. I'll just say at the college and university level, in five years, there will be some universities that exist today that don't exist. And this will have been a factor in it. And in, in many cases, they are colleges and universities that serve the underserved, that serve non-traditional students, that have the wraparound support services for kids who may not have had the greatest K through 12 experience. So it, it, if you thought it was awful, it's even worse than awful. Um, and I think one of the things, now I'm, I'm gonna break your question down into two parts. What, what did I take away from it as a, as a person from that interaction? Because it really was a powerful interaction. Um, I spent some time on Thanksgiving giving thanks for those folks and for people who do that job. But that Thank was you. a, uh, that was, wow. These folks are kind of putting themselves out there and fully out there. 
Um, and the other thing that I've had a bunch of conversations with people about that conversation without, you know, I, I didn't know those folks' names, so I wasn't going to be disclosing their names or anything like that. But what I realized I was starting to do was become an advocate. Mm. I think that's one of the things that adds to emotional bank account, right? We, we were talking earlier, as you said, Bob, about the, the work in the community. When you see the change, it may not make it all worth it, but it makes it mostly worth it. And so becoming an advocate and, and becoming an advocate to say, yeah, okay, next year when everybody's back in school, we're not done yet. We're still dealing with the pandemic and, and looking for opportunities to be able to be supportive of the K-12 superintendents, but just as important, being supportive of the teachers, being supportive of the students and their families and yes. not letting people just say, oh, well, that was last year. It's, right. it's over. As if, as if life is not a continuous journey. You just gave us the uh, content for our next message to the superintendents, <laughs> because uh, because I, I think that really is, a, I mean, it's very gratifying to hear you say that you, you personally gave thanks for the work they do, and that you personally have become an advocate for their work. And so that's, that's really appreciated. So Suzanne, I think we've, we've hit a home run on this uh, opening uh, episode of Podcast for Leaderful Schools and its new uh, incarnation. Uh, Kevin, thank you very, very much. Uh, but before we close, maybe each of us has a chance to make a final statement and then, we'll, uh, then we have a closing to do. Sue, anything you want to say as we wrap it up? I, I, like Kevin, found it an incredible conversation to be part of because it was a reminder not only about the humanity that we share, but the, the emotions that propel people to stay involved with what I would say is complicated work when you're dealing with children, families, teachers, and a community of people whose hopes and dreams um, every day in terms of their children walk into to schools throughout this nation. And I've been gratified to be part of that for a long time, but I got reminded um, about how impactful individual people's efforts are and how important it is that, as Kevin said, we, we keep on keeping on, um, but also realize that the world has changed for many people and it's not going to be turned off uh, immediately once folks are healthy again and our schools reopen, but rather it's going to be returning to school, whatever that reset looks like in terms of curriculum instruction and assessment, but also the social and emotional learning that needs to be there and the support for the children, for their families, as well as the people that work in the organization. Kevin, a last word for us? Sure. I, you know, um, when I started, I'm a first-generation college student. My father didn't graduate high school, and so what did I know about professions? And I thought I would be a lawyer. And then I took some psychology classes and really liked it. And I, I say that because conversations like the conversation with the superintendents, as long as you're willing to be open to what they have to say and not looking for an opportunity to debate them, you can be transformed. If I would have gone to law school, I would have learned how to debate. <laughs> I, went, I went to graduate school in psychology and I can point to 
a number of people that I've worked with in psychotherapy, and that wasn't psychotherapy, but I, a number of people I've worked with in psychotherapy who have changed me. And mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give you one example that has a parallel to the superintendents. Two different times in my career, I've done support group for hospice care nurses. Mm. People are saints. They are amazing people. Um, and, and thinking about their lives has influenced mine and changed mine. And I think back to our discussion about the political divide, if we went into interactions with people looking for opportunities to be changed, we would be enhanced, our mm -hmm. bank account would be added to, and a lot more would probably get done. I think that qualifies as a wonderful benediction. I, agree. <laughs> I, I, I really do appreciate that. Uh, so Kevin Corcoran, thank you. Uh, I said at the beginning, this is one of my favorite people, and I think you probably, oh, probably figure out why I said that now. Uh, so uh, dear listeners, uh, oh, I have our producer, uh, our podcast producer, Lane Middlecoff, reminded me to remind you that every time we make one of these uh, recordings, we need to uh, be public about the fact that the participants have agreed to that this can be recorded and distributed. And so, uh, Kevin, thank you for that. I appreciate that expression. Uh, and to our listeners, thank you for being part of this opening installment of the new edition of uh, the new volume, rather, of Podcast for Leaderful Schools, as always coming to you almost live from Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. Okay. That's a wrap.